Okay, congregation, I want y'all all to, no, oh, y'all are out here, that's right, okay. We're looking at uh, healing the blind person this, day, this morning. Okay, I know y'all have heard the story, I got hurt, did not wear glasses, protection glasses, so it was an evening, I have dark shades that protect me, and I did not wear them, and, and a rock slung up from the weed eater and popped me in the eye, and you don't want to see it. Um, what, what's the uh, Greek uh, uh, one-eyed? Uh, Cyclops. Y'all, y'all don't want to see it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now then, that's the truth. <laughs> what I was telling you is just trying to be generous. No. I, okay. I want you to turn to... Uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. As we continue our study in Matthew, we're going to be looking at roof destruction. The coming of a paralytic. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, which was Capernaum where his headquarters was. And behold, they were bringing him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God, who had given such authority to men who had given such authority to men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this group of wonderful people here today, and I thank you for their participation in worship as we've uh, tried to express ourselves through song and, and other means of lifting you up throughout the service to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray that the same will be during this time of message, the reading of your word that's occurred, and the uh, preaching of your word. I pray that there'll be a very special anointing upon this time, and I pray that you open our eyes to your truth, what you would have us to learn, what you would have us to hear, what you would have us to see, that it might deal with our hearts and our lives the way the Holy Spirit shows us whether in direction, whether in correction, whether in conviction, whether in encouragement, whatever it might be, God, I pray that you will reveal to us and that we will respond in like manner. God, that we will receive what you're giving from your heart to us and that we will open our hearts to you and receive your message into our lives, that it might change us, that we might be brought closer to you. And I know that this can't be done without 
your grace and its sufficiency and working in us and through us and around us. And so I pray that this will be the case here today, that we will see it in a very special way. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We often teach our children a story that like this one that teaches morals and let me say that's not all wrong I'm not saying it's wrong but totally but this man that came to Jesus involves more than morals here you know we'll teach a story to our children or teach it sometimes like saying well he had friends his friends were concerned for him. They, those friends that were concerned for him brought him to Jesus, the source of his need. Jesus healed him. And it's good to have friends who care that much to bring you to Jesus. Now that's great. That's wonderful. It is good. Those things are good. But they do not reveal to us the main purpose in Matthew, in this part, in this story, and what Matthew is trying to tell us. You know, we, every gospel has a, a, a purpose for writing. Every gospel writer had a purpose for writing. And he usually wrote to a group of people also that he was speaking to. All, we need all the Gospels to present for us a more comprehensive study of the life of Jesus. All authors of the Gospel have uh, this event here that we just read early in Jesus' Galilean ministry, except Matthew. Now, they may differ at points in placing things different in different spots and in mentioning different uh, aspects of different stories like Mark's gospel is the most concise gospel it's a fast paced if you will gospel and Luke is the most comprehensive gospel of the four he tells us that his, he's more concerned with the chronological aspect of understanding Jesus but Matthew's gospel is not chronological. As we mentioned earlier, it's thematic. And the material is grouped in themes. Matthew's material that we will be looking at today is more than likely it took place before Jesus gave us a Sermon on the Mount. And the reason Matthew gives us this material to go along with his purpose of revealing who Jesus is. That's his reason. And that's why he sticks it here. Jesus is beginning to stand out, to be different, to, uh, you know, to uh, show people that he is unique. He is uh, uh, you know, uh, wanting us to understand that he is unique in the sense of his authority and that's very important as we read he's you know at the end it said they glorified God who had given such authority to men so 
As we come to this passage, Matthew carefully wrought out his plan and purpose. And there are no loose ends uh, in in his purpose. He is preaching Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's demonstrating this with Christ's power and authority. We saw it through his teaching. We saw it through his miracles and now with his miracle again. It is here that one begins to notice also the official opposition. The official opposition to the ministry of the Messiah, the King. Here we have for the, the first hint of the legal charges that will come later uh, that are preferred against him. If you'll, uh, you know, it says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes in 9.3. The climax of this is found in Matthew 26, 65, where Jesus confesses his Messiahship before the Sanhedrin, provoking the high priest to tear their clothes and cry out, He has spoken blasphemy. So, in this chapter, we have the anticipation of the final charge that led to his death. This is the beginning of it. And uh, some commentators claim that there are four charges against Jesus in this passage. One is he's accused, or this chapter, one is he is accused of blasphemy in chapter 9 verse uh, 3. Then he's accused of immorality in chapter 9 verses 10 through 13. And when he uh, sits with the tax uh, gatherers or tax collectors and, and sinners. And then uh, the third one he's accused of laxity and piety for he did not fast Uh, as John's disciples did in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And then finally, he's accused of being in league with the devil uh, when he uh, healed the dumb uh, demoniac in chapter 9, verses 32 through 34. But we do understand here the beginning of, of opposition of him claiming to be the Messiah. And the slanderers are, are at work. The whispering tongues are, po- are poisoning the truth. The wrong motives are being ascribed. And the drive to eliminate him has begun. The primary purpose for Matthew sharing this story, though, has to do with the messianic power and authority of the Son of Man. Son of Man. He has power and authority, and here is the key. He's bringing this out first to forgive sins. He's letting them know that he is God, God the Son. And this is why they get all bent out of shape and say he's blaspheming. So the first thing that we want to notice is is before the presence of the Lord Jesus. Them being before the presence of the Lord Jesus. And the sad thing about this, with this, and with him claiming this, and with him showing his authority, they do not recognize, for the most part, who he is. I'm talking about the scribes and the Pharisees 
and, and the religious people, they don't understand or they don't see them at all. They're blinded to the truth. In Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5, it tells us about four men. It goes in more detail with this paralyzed person getting on the roof, tearing up the roof, and lowering him down before Jesus. And the reason is, is because of the crowd being so great. When he got back home, news had, had uh, you know, just been spreading all over about what he had done. And, and uh, he's back home. And so in turn, we, um, we see that they're, they're just bringing in all these sick people. And Matthew gets right to the purpose. He doesn't get involved with all these little details, tearing up the roof, them lowering it, and, and the, you know all, all of that that's involved in the other uh, Gospels. What he wants to do is he wants to get right to the theme of what he's trying to uh, get across. He doesn't care to mention the details about how the man was brought before Jesus. He is more concerned about letting his readers know who Jesus is by way of his power and authority. Luke tells us that there were Pharisees, scribes, and multitudes present before Jesus. Mark tells us that the crowds were so large that they couldn't get through the door to see Jesus. And that's why they went to the roof and became very uh, uh, you know, creative in bringing him or getting him before Jesus. So whenever Jesus is present, before the presence of the Lord, we need, to, we need to remember there is power and authority like none they had ever seen before. Being before the very presence of Jesus, they didn't recognize all of this because they didn't have the Bible like we have. They're not looking back on it. They're right in the midst of it. But they had the very presence of the power and authority from above in Jesus. This occasion was just like that. It says in Luke 5:17, "And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal." In Mark 2, he says, "He preached the word to them. The message of the word had authority. It spoke of the messianic age of the king. Repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now they had the very presence of this Messiah before them. But as many today don't see him, they did not see him. They did not recognize him. This is why, as I shared with you and have been sharing with you, uh, especially with the chairs that we have to make, we need to make sure that the gospel, the word of God, and, and the life of Christ is evident in our lives. We shouldn't just tell stories to our children and our grandchildren. That's good, though, about the Bible. We should let them see what has happened to us a lot of times through this these stories tell them how God has worked in our lives and then when they have things happen you can share with them well God allowed this or God did that he he is present before you and we need to 
make sure that we help them in whatever way we can in seeing the presence of God. I think that we've gotten away from that in a lot of ways. I think that we, we, we just go, you know, we take it for granted. I think that a lot of times we don't even recognize or try to recognize God during the day. In the little things as, as well as the big things. And we need to if we're going to help people see Jesus, his power and his authority. That he is real. That he is before them. That he is living in us. And then we're going to look at the bringing of the paralytic. The four men brought their friend to Jesus for healing. This is where as I said earlier, the Bible stories for little children get a little off track sometimes as far as teaching the real lesson, the main theme here. I mean, it's great in finding a friend, don't get me wrong, who cares enough to bring someone to Jesus. I think that that's good to mention. Uh, they did not use a conventional method. That's good. Talk about that. In bringing him to Jesus, use any kind, as long as it doesn't contradict the word of God they didn't walk through the door they didn't wait their turn they tore the roof off and lowered him before Jesus they were very earnest and genuine in their love talk about that we should be earnest and, and genuine in, in loving our friends in telling them about Jesus but don't let it stop there especially if you're talking about this story that does give us an example to follow. We should do everything we can within reason to bring people and our friends to Jesus. We should show that we're earnest and genuine in what we do and that we love them. Nothing should stop us but saying that we must also realize that the main theme taught by Matthew is not earnestness and genuineness of his friends but the authority and power of the Son of Man who has come. This is something, or there is something unusual that's done by Jesus here. He does something that uh, in comparison with the other miracles uh, mentioned that's different here. In every one of the other miracles thus far, the person with the need does the first speaking, but Jesus wants to show his power and authority. And so Jesus doesn't allow the paralytic to speak first. He speaks first because he knows the Pharisees and, and the, uh, the scribes are there, and he has a purpose. Matthew is showing us his purpose to show them that he is the Son of God. He says, your sins are forgiven. He says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus being, and we've got to realize here something also, Jesus was fairly young, wasn't he? And so uh, this here, Jesus being fairly young, the language they use, take courage, son, uh, you could, he could have been speaking to a younger boy. But more than likely, if that were so, it would have revealed that in some form or fashion. I believe it goes along with Matthew's theme here, and that's why he said that. He is speaking as one with authority. And 
he says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And that is interesting for his evident problem was paralysis. Neither the friends or the one with the paralysis got to speak, though. If they had, you know what they had said, they would have said, please heal me. Heal me of this paralysis. Take care of it. And that was the obvious need, his visual need. But Jesus doesn't deal with the physical need first. Why? Why does Jesus deal with the sin issue first? Once again, it's speaking of who he is. So the next thing that we need to look at is a pardoning uh, from the Lord. Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Why didn't Jesus just deal with the physical problem first? Well, we as humans seem to be tempted into dividing the world into needs and need-nots. Jesus comes along and he shows the Pharisees and the scribes and the multitudes that number one, we all, not needs and needs not, he is mentioning the sins, we all have a desperate need. We're sinners. We all have a desperate need. And second of all, that desperate need, the greatest need is not the paralysis. But it, it's not the physical, it's the spiritual. The greatest need is redemption. The most precious gift that Jesus can give the man is not the ability to walk, but the forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. What might be implied in the words, take courage or be of good cheer, is that the man probably knew he probably had some guilt and burden of sin, despair of hope by uh, some extent. Because the teaching of that day, you know, by the Pharisees was, if you're sick, it was caused by sin. And so he probably had that in mind. You see, you have, you, you have first the condition of this paralytic. Next, the means of healing. It's clearly faith. He's trusting him. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we're told here in verse 2, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now I know that some commentators, Barclay is one, and some other scholars say the man was saved by the faith of their friends. But that goes contrary, doesn't it, to us trusting the Lord personally. So what exactly is he saying? Well, may I say... Why, was me, why must we limit the pronoun, their faith, to just the four? Why can't he be included? It doesn't say he's excluded, I don't think, anywhere does it. No, it doesn't say that. Scroggy points out, it would seem that the faith would refer to all 
five since the four would not bring the paralytic against his will. So I believe him to be true. The New Testament teaches faith is the instrumentality of God's bestowal of his blessings, particularly that of salvation. It is through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The pardon came from the only one who could possibly bring it about. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Now let's look at the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. Here the very men, as I said earlier, Jesus being in their presence, they should have recognized him. But our eyes and our minds are blinded, aren't they, when we're lost? Just because they were legalists and religious didn't mean that they were born-again believers, that they were trusting in Christ. Scroggy says, there never was a congregation where there was not a critic, and too often criticism comes from those who might be expected to rejoice. Isn't that so true? The students of Scripture object the course of the events. They reason within themselves over the meaning of the, the, the Lord's words regarding his claim to forgive sins as blasphemy. Who, forg- who can forgive sins but God only in Mark 2.7? They did not say it aloud. This was a murmur of the heart. Their own silent conspiracy, in other words. They were murmuring that Jesus blasphemed God. And blaspheme means to slander the character of God or presume to act in God's stead, which the latter here is applied here. The scribes assumed that Jesus had presumed to act as God. This is precisely what Jesus is doing. He's acting as God because he is God. He's the one who has authority to forgive sins. And the issue again is authority. The authority of God. They have presumed that Jesus has claimed to be God. They are outraged at this. They know that only God can forgive sins. And he forgave sins. And he showed them that he could forgive sins by healing the man. And that is unquestionable. Only God can know the murmuring of the heart also. And Jesus knew their murmuring. Jesus' identity as God is disclosed not only in that he can forgive sins as he did and he showed, but he knows the murmurings in one's heart. Matthew helps us again see the disclosure of the progression of Jesus. The problem that's exposed here, though, is Another thing that's interesting is the question, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Why didn't Jesus just say, why are you making a misjudgment? Or why are you confused in your heart? Jesus doesn't accuse them of being confused, does he? 
he accuses them of being sinful. He doesn't accuse them of misunderstanding. He accuses them of denying his authority. He is telling them it is evil to deny his authority, who he is. It is evil to think less of who he is and his authority. The man is still on his back, but the man is a changed man. If you're looking at him, you can't see the change right away. He later says, take up your bed and walk. You're healed. The scribes and the Pharisees have now reached their boiling point, though. They have seen the crowds following Jesus. They're growing in number. They have seen miraculous works. But for him to claim to be God, that's it. Enough is enough. So they say, you have blasphemed God. Jesus goes further and lets him see that what he has said has happened. So what does he do? He truly has the authority to forgive, and he shows them. Jesus could never have performed the miracle of healing the paralytic if God was against him and his claims were false. So therefore he said, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise or to say, rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, then he said to the paralytic, rise and take up your bed and go home. Now really neither is easier, is it? Both are impossible with men, but they're not impossible with God. They're easy with God. Superficially, it would have been easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, get up and walk and the man be healed. Superficially. That is their reasoning. That is why he said, arise, take up your bed and go home. If the paralytic walks, then it speaks of Jesus' authority, doesn't it? To forgive sin. If Jesus possesses such authority, then who is he other than God's unique agent of salvation? Jesus takes the miracle in the content of his authority. He now transparently revealed his purpose to or in this dramatic proclamation of the forgiveness of sin. He verified the reality of the forgiveness through the healing. The demonstration of the healing. But in order it says. This is the purpose clause. For declaring that his intention was to let them know. That his power to, was to forgive sin. He didn't do it just to be doing it. It was not to deny the assumption that only God can forgive. But to claim for himself who he was. So. Here the Son of Man, mentioned here, this title is often thought of as simply an expression designed to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. But the Son of Man also stresses his deity, his Messiahship, just like the Son of God. You see, the Messianic King of Israel is a man, but he is more than a man. And 
It is not surprising to learn that the term son of man has its origin in the messianic passage of David. Or Daniel, excuse me, chapter 7. So the son of man is given dominion, glory, and kingdom over all the peoples and nations. And Jesus' demonstration of his authority over disease and sin testify to that dominion. So thus the term is really a royal term. Marking him out as a messianic king. So this was also one of Jesus' favorite terms. And, and you'll notice that after the resurrection and, and ascension that it's not mentioned that much. If any. And then the result. Paralytic arose, went home. But when the multitudes saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who has given such authority to men. The crowd may not have understood everything, but they could see that God was at work, couldn't they? Something unique was happening. They did not understand that God had given such authority to a man that was a Messiah, but they did understand that he had given them authority and the healing of the paralytic is a turning point in Jesus ministry as he measures his ministry in the what the terms of forgiveness of sin the healing takes on an additional importance beyond the mere reversal of physical uh, ills the healing shows that God is committed in Jesus ministry and to his ministry and it also substantiates Jesus claim about the extent of his authority who he is the thought of authority and power is confirmed here and the first conflict of hierarchy as far as the religious hierarchy and their rejection of Jesus is here also the crowd they know that something God has worked and given this authority to a man, to men. But they didn't understand truly that he was Messiah. What can we learn? Jesus, the son of man, we need to believe this with all of our heart. I mean believe it with all of our heart. If we have been changed, then we need to live it and believe it. That he forgives sin. And we need to rejoice every day that he does that. Now some of us, we get caught up in our life. And if we're not careful, as we judge as we've been talking about, we go and we get in a cycle. Cycle may not be as bad as judges, but we can go and get in this cycle of complacency. We think we're all right. And what happens when we think that we're all right? Then we're not really allowing God to speak to us through his word as we have that study with him every day and prayer time with him. And we don't allow the Holy Spirit to reveal things in our life that we need to confess. Forsake. Give up. We think we're pretty good. And the reason that we think we're pretty good is because we judge ourselves by someone else by what's going on in the world. 
and not by a holy God who forgives us of our sins. We're sinners saved by grace. We need to recognize that every day and share it with others. And forgiving our sins is far greater than healing of any physical ailment. We need to realize that. We need to recognize that and believe that. Now, why do I say that? When we have prayer time, Sunday school, when we have prayer time Wednesday night, when we have our prayer list, this is good, don't get me wrong. What is our prayer list primarily made up of? What? Sick people. How many people are on that that are lost? How many people are on that that are lost? You see, forgiving our sins is far greater than healing in it our physical ailments. Because if a person is not forgiven of their sins, and if we're not concerned and praying for these people, then you know what? We, they can get sick physically, and we can pray that God will heal them and all this. And they may live out their life to be 60, 70, 80 years old, 90 but they die, and that's just the beginning of all eternity where they spend that in hell. We need to be more concerned as a church for lost people. They are going to hell. And we would be going there if it wasn't for what? The grace of God and God saving us. And so in turn, we need to serve him faithfully. Rejoice in what he's done every day and serve him faithfully. If Jesus has the authority over nature, over the physical, and over the spiritual realm, he has authority to help us also to become what we need to become, like Christ. He has authority to help us in our marriages. He has authority to help us in our work. He has authority to help us in relationships with other people, maybe our neighbors and other people that, that, that we're not getting along with that well. He has authority to help us in our burden over a country that doesn't seem to be going in the right direction so often. He has authority over kings and presidents and Congress and other things. And we need to realize that. And he has authority to help us in whatever we face. Strongholds that may develop in our life, that we've allowed Satan to, to just build in our lives, that, that keep us stumbling along the way. He can tear those down. 
He has authority to restore broken lives. He has authority to handle troubles and difficulty. But we've got to believe it, don't we? And I think the best place to go, first of all, is to the Word of God. But second of all, we need to look at our experiences. Has He changed our life? Is He changing our life? Do we really believe that He saved us? Well, guess what? If we do, and the Bible says He has, then it is His authority that's done it. His power, His grace. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I just want to thank